I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. It's been our privilege for many months now to be studying this important sermon that was given by Jesus in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And there are so many profound truths that are found in this portion of Scripture that we find the same principles taught over and over again by the apostles in the rest of the New Testament. I've stated many times that this is a life-changing sermon. And as we go through it over a long period of time, I hope you've not forgotten how the message develops. And I do hope that you spend some time going back and looking over previous sections so that uh, you'll understand how all of it fits together and how each section relates to the others. One of the problems that we have with a long-time exposition of a portion of Scripture like this one is that we're not looking at the entire sermon that Jesus gave in one setting. And uh, when you get to one section or another section, you, you may have forgotten some of the foundational pr uh, principles that have already been discussed. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go back every week and rehearse everything that we talked about. And so I realize sometimes that might leave you just scrambling a bit uh, to find out where we are. But I want to remind you once again this morning, as we enter into the discussion of the next verse that we have for today, that the key verse of the entire sermon is found in chapter 5, verse number 20. And you have to keep that verse in mind through all of this, or you'll come to the wrong conclusions about what's written. In this verse, Jesus says that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees before it's possible for us to enter God's kingdom. Jesus is telling us there that there is another righteousness that is required that's beyond the very best of the best of any person that ever lived or is dead. God's standard is always the perfection. And the only perfect person that uh, standard is perfection. And the only person that, that has ever lived that was a perfect person was Jesus Christ. And so that would tell us that God's standard is Jesus Christ and the righteousness we must have is the same as his. Now the Bible says that it's possible for us to have that righteousness, but it does not come by our works, not by anything that we do, but it comes by faith in Christ. And so when you trust Christ, he gives you the perfection that you need to enter into the kingdom of God. And so in God's eyes, you are perfect because God always looks at the sacrifice that Christ made. He never looks at any good works that you do. But he lets Christ's perfection stand good for you. Because Christ has covered your sins on the death of the cross. Now this was the huge glaring omission of the scribes and the Pharisees. They thought they could actually reach God's holiness by their own methods. And so they perverted the righteous holy law of God. And they instituted their own standards. Uh, they lowered the standard to a standard that they could keep. And then they said, we are righteous. Now I think that you would see where that would lead them. We come to chapter 7 and we find a group of self-righteous hypocrites that have now become the judge and the jury for everything that's righteous. And so they were continually criticizing others. They nitpicked others. They were always looking for the minutest faults that they could find in any person. And they really couldn't see the huge, catastrophic violations of God's commandments that they were committing every day. And so thus we come to verse number 1 of chapter 7. And Jesus addresses this problem. They were hypocritical judges. 
And so this section deals with proper judgment. It deals with improper judgment. And it speaks here of judging ourselves before we judge others. Now we're going to read all of this again. And then we're going to look specifically at verse number 6. Which is one of the most remarkable verses in the entire sermon. If you'd stand with me please as we look into God's word. Matthew chapter 7 verse number 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou, thy, thy, uh, how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture that we've read today. Open up our hearts, Lord, to what you'd have us to know. And may we see very clearly the message that is in this, this part of the Scripture. Bless our people as we bring your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like you to look at verse number 6 once again. Jesus says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Most of you probably have red-letter editions of the Bible. And if you do, or you know this anyway, everything that was personally spoken by Jesus is denoted by those red letters. Some have said that we ought not to do this, we ought not to separate this out, because it makes it appear that the words that are written in red are more important than the words that are written in black. But I want to remind you that the entire Bible is God's Word. So that what was spoken by Moses, by David, by the apostles, by the prophets and the others, all of it is God's holy preserved word. Now there are some things that are said by the prophets in the scriptures that maybe we wouldn't expect that Jesus would say. And when you look at Matthew 7 verse number 6 and you see the words here in red letters, you don't expect that Jesus would use this kind of language. And that's because the Jesus of the modern church is soft and effeminate. He has long hair and dovey eyes. He has soft hands and he always made sure that his face was clean and his fingernails were manicured. He's the Jesus that's tolerant of everybody. He doesn't want to rattle anybody's cage. And so no matter where you've been or where you decide to go, Jesus will accept you. But nothing is further from the truth. Jesus is kind and compassionate. He loves sinners, but he never loved a sinner to leave him in his sin. The message that Jesus always gave is one of repentance from sin. And he tells us that we must believe in him. And then he tells us that, that we're going to have a change in our lives that's always manifested when we believed in him. Now, people who have believed in Jesus don't change their lives. Jesus changes it for them. And so whenever you have a person who says that they're a Christian or says that they know Jesus, and yet they continue in a lifestyle that's not holy, that's not or is contrary to God's holiness, then that's evidence they've not been changed by Jesus. Now we notice something very striking here about verse number 6. This is not too subtle an indication that there are some 
that God will not reach with his grace. There are some people who will not be saved, and Jesus never intended to save them. Now, I know immediately that that statement sounds a discordant tone in many people's ears. They know that God doesn't save all, but they can't believe that there are some that God did not intend to save. You see, they have in their, in their minds fairness and equity, and they believe that all, pers- all people deserve to be saved. And so they look at their lives, and they look at the lives of others, and they really believe that all people have some redeeming qualities. If you just go down under the skin far enough, we find out that all people are really pretty good people. Well, first of all, there is no person who deserves to be saved. That was the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. They deserved to be saved because they thought they were good. They, they thought that they were what God were righteous as God required, and they really did try to please God. Then secondly, the Bible's description of sinners is that the best that we can ever do in God's eyes is nothing more than filthy rags. Isaiah the prophet said that, and I don't mean to be crude, but the reference that he was making was to bloody menstrual claws. And he says that the very best that we can be is unholy, it is despicable, it's filthy, and it's repugnant to God. And the New Testament teaches the same. It says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. It says we're like dead, rotting corpses. And so we may have a high opinion of ourselves, but God's opinion of us is much different. And then thirdly, to say that God intended to save all, but he didn't save all, is a statement that suffers under its own weight. Whatever God intends to do, he does. And if he intended to save all, he would do it. And if he couldn't save all, then it means that there's something that is in the way of God, something greater than God that prevented him from doing what he intended to do. And so we come to this text, and we have to deal with it. Jesus said it. And so we have to look into the context and learn what it means. Now, number one, this text gives us the description of obdurate unbelievers. Obdurate means persistent in wrongdoing. The Bible's description of unbelievers grows progressively worse depending upon how hardened they have become against the gospel of Christ. And by that, we ought not to think that any person is any closer to God depending upon some good work that they do. But we certainly do see that it is possible for people to become so strong in their opposition to the message that God utterly rejects dealing with them. Now, this is what happened to the scribes and the Pharisees. Do you remember they saw Jesus casting out demons, and instead of glorifying God for what Jesus did, they said that he was using the power of the devil to do it. And Jesus said to them, you're not going to be forgiven of this. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit because because you have attributed God's work to Satan. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. So the idea here is that there are some people who can become so profane and so persistently opposed to the Word of God that God says that we are to stay away from them. Now, we're we're going to discuss that aspect of this a little bit more in just a few minutes, but I want you to notice how Jesus describes these kinds of people. First of all, he says that they're like dogs. He says they're fierce like dogs. In the Jewish economy, a dog was considered to be an unclean animal. 
Dogs in those days were not like the little house pets that you have at home. And they, don't, they didn't sit on people's laps and they didn't sleep in people's beds. Dogs were fierce and they were scavengers. Often they would roam the streets and you get a pack of dogs together and it's a very dangerous thing. Dogs could never be used for a sacrifice. You couldn't eat a dog. As if you'd ever want to, but you couldn't eat one. If you sold a dog, like a, like a sheep dog or something, you couldn't even bring the money from the sale of that dog to give as an offering in the temple. Sometimes dogs were used to describe people that were evil and contemptuous. In Second Samuel, there was a man named Shimei that cursed David and threw rocks at him and called him a bloody man of Satan. And one of David's servants by the name of Abishai said this to David. He said, why should this dead dog... Curse, my, curse the Lord my king, my Lord the king. Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. So he called him a dog. And worse than that, he called him a dead dog. And it was a description of a worthless, no good, despicable person. When Jesus speaks of giving that which is holy to the dogs, he's making a reference here that the Jews would recognize because he was speaking about the meat of sacrifices. When the Israelites would bring their animals for sacrifice, the animal would be killed, and then a portion of the meat would be given to the priest, and that would go for his support and for his meals. Some of the meat would go to the altar, and that's what was used for the sacrifice. And often there was some of the meat that was returned to the family, and they could take that home and eat eat it themselves. Well, any of the meat that wasn't for sacrifice could be later thrown out if they didn't use it, And dogs might come and they would eat that portion that was thrown out. But what the priest would never do, he would never take the portion of this meat that had been consecrated to God, that it was the meat of the sacrifice, he would never allow a dog to eat that. That meat was holy to the Lord. The dog was a profane animal. And it would be the height of blasphemy for the priest to allow the dog to eat consecrated meat. So dogs were fierce and ravenous. And this is the picture that that Jesus gives of malicious sinners, those who would harm the gospel or the messengers of the gospel. Then he uses another description. He calls them hogs. They're filthy like hogs. Pigs were filthy, loathsome animals to the Jews. I mean, still today, we know that Orthodox Jews will not eat bacon and ham. Uh, They won't eat pig snouts. They don't eat pork rinds. And they don't do it because the hog was such a filthy animal. Remember when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son? He enhanced the depravity and the deplorable condition of the prodigal by saying that he was so low that he was reduced to feeding the pigs and he would even have eaten what the pigs ate. This is the portion of Luke 15 where Jesus tells the story. It says, and Jesus is, is telling the story, and he says, and he went, that's the prodigal, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, or he became the employee of this certain person, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Now, Jesus couldn't have mentioned anything worse to this Jewish audience than this. Feeding pigs was a horrible job. And certainly eating things that a pig would eat was unthinkable. Then we also have the story in the New Testament about the maniac who is possessed with thousands of demons. You remember the story how that Jesus cast the demons out of, out of this man and he cast them into a herd of pigs that was nearby. 
And those pigs ran down a steep place, the Bible says, and they drowned themselves into the sea. Pigs were the habitation of, de- of devils. That's sort of the picture that we're trying to get here. It was symbolic of their horrible nature. In Second Peter, Peter compares dogs and pigs to people. And he says that a person who hears the gospel and pretends to be a Christian, and yet he turns from what he's heard, he's like a dog and a hog. Peter said, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And the years between the Old and the New Testaments, at the close of the Old Testament, there was a Seleucid king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he went into the temple of Jerusalem, and he defiled the altar there by sacrificing a sow to his heathen god. Now you see what Jesus is saying here, dogs and hogs. And he couldn't have brought a more vivid picture of vile, wasted, wicked sinners to their minds. And there is no greater proof than what we read right here that Jesus did not have tolerance for sin. He does not overlook it. He calls it exactly like it is. Jesus never sugarcoats sin or those who commit sin. So the people that Jesus has in mind here are obdurate unbelievers. These are people that are hardcore. They're ones that are persistent in their attacks against God's people. It's not enough for them just to to sit by and say, well, we don't want to listen to it or to turn from the truth, but they attack the truth. They try to do harm. They throw stones. They persecute. Well, next Jesus tells us how we are to treat those kinds of people. And so we see here the rejection of obstinate unbelievers. Now, a question I think we have to ask is, how does all of this relate to what we've already read in the teachings in verses 1 through 5? Now, the first five verses are about careful humility of a person, uh, the humility that's required. If you desire that you're going to correct another person who's entered into sin, Jesus says that you have to remove the imperfections from your life, and you have to be very careful about how you approach that person. He says, you are going to be judged by the same judgment that you pass on others. As we've already discussed in uh, the previous two messages on those first five verses, that he doesn't tell us that judgment is impossible. If he did, then he would be in conflict with hundreds of other Bible passages. He'd be in conflict with himself right here in verse number 6. He'd be in conflict with other places in the Sermon on the Mount. So what he's teaching in those first five verses is that we have to know how to speak. We have to know how to talk to people. Our lives have to be right before we can talk to others. You know, sometimes we can approach people in the wrong way, and their obstinacy to the gospel can be actually increased by the method that we try to give it to them. Sometimes people are very offensive with the gospel. Now, not that the gospel's not already offensive in itself to people who are unbelievers, but I mean there are some people that are out to get sinners. And so they bring the gospel with an offending method. And I know that you've seen people that carry around their big black King James Bible, and they're determined they're going to pulverize sinners with it. And so there are preachers that live to offend people, and instead of inviting people to come to Christ and encouraging their belief, what they really try to do is to drive people with a whip. And their attitude is, if you don't like my method, then don't come here. Don't come to church if you don't like what I do. So they don't preach to bring people in. They preach to drive people out. 
And ironically, they're doing it to protect the holiness of the church with an unholy method. Well, I certainly do believe that we have to preach the truth. We're not going to stop preaching about the depravity of man. We're not going to stop preaching about the reality of, the, of hell. We're not going to soothe people that are in their sins and tell them, oh, it's okay, you can be in God's kingdom, and you, you can be in God's church. It really doesn't matter what you do. It isn't important that you have a change in your life. We're going to st- keep preaching that all of those things have to take place. There has to be a change. Christ does that. You can't live in sin and be a part of God's kingdom and God's church. People that get saved get changed. But we also have to understand that people are different. There are different personalities. There's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all gospel presentation. Now, the gospel is the same no matter who you're talking to, but the method of giving the gospel often has to change according to the type of people that you're trying to reach. For instance, I don't deal with children in the same way that I deal with adults. I'm not going to bring a child into my office and talk to that child about salvation on the same level, saying exactly the same things that I'm going to deal with an adult. I wouldn't do that. And likewise, uh, I wouldn't have someone come into my office that's been involved in some kind of a sin, uh, and, and I know that something's going on in their life. Maybe somebody who's, who's hurting because they've lost their job or something like that. And I wouldn't speak to them without considering all the things that are going on in their life. I'm not going to be insensitive by telling them, well, the reason that you lost your job is because you missed two Sundays at church. So I'm not going to come down on people like that. Maybe they are in God's chastisement. It's possible they are, but there's a way to make them see that. There's a way to draw them back to the holiness of God in their lives that helps them rather than driving them further away. So we have to vary the approach when we talk to people. We never vary the message, but we vary the approach. You know, another example is one that I was told by, uh, told by uh, someone the other day. Uh, there was a family that attended one of the local churches, and this was an unsaved family. But they attended church thinking that they needed to find out what church was all about. And, and they realized, we need some peace in our lives. We need, we need something to change. And you know that often people come to the church and they're unaware that the Holy Spirit is already working on them that the Holy Spirit has brought them into a place where they can hear the gospel preach. They're not even realizing that at the time, but they may come to church in order to hear God's word, and and, and, and they have that, that drawing of the Holy Spirit that's already taking place. Well, these particular people went to the church, and at the end of the sermon, there were people that converged on them. And they wanted to know, are you going to sign our card? Are you going to sign our card? Are you going to get saved? Are you going to come to Jesus? And those people were immediately turned off, and they thought that they were in the middle of a cult. And so they left church and went to a place, another church, where they might not even hear the truth of salvation preached. You see, you have to look at how you're giving the gospel. There are some churches that give or design invitations to be emotional appeals that simply coerce people. They try to get people to make decisions or even trick people sometimes. Some churches, they even drag them down the aisle if they can. But never once in the gospel do we ever see, the, uh, in the Bible rather, see the gospel presented in that way. Jesus never used that kind of a method. He knew how to vary the approach. So he didn't talk to the woman at the well in the same way that he talked to the rich young ruler. You have to use some discernment in the way that you speak to people. But we also have to know 
And this brings us to the real point of this verse. We also have to know when to stop. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. There are actually some people that are so hostile to the gospel that they'll turn against you with hatred and they'll use it against you. I don't suppose we really have to worry too much about violence like the early Christians did. It's not likely that uh, somebody's going to do us bodily harm because of the gospel. But the gospel can be harmed in other ways. So Jesus is primarily speaking here of those who mock the gospel and those who resist it strenuously. I said at the beginning of the message that it's evident that not all people will be saved and God never intended to save them. That's very difficult teaching. But we look in the scriptures and we see that Jesus himself was discriminating according to his divine omniscience. A great example of that we have in John chapter 5. Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda and there were all sorts of people there, probably even hundreds of people there that were waiting to be healed. And Jesus came to that place and he stepped over some people. He went around some people until he came to this one man who'd been lying there for 38 years waiting to be healed. And Jesus healed that man. The Bible doesn't give us any record that he talked to anyone else on that day. He never spoke to another person. It doesn't tell us that. And we ask the question, could he have saved them all? Here, Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda with all these people that are lying there. Could he have healed them all? Well, sure he could have. Could he have saved them all? Absolutely he could have. But you know the Bible says he went to a certain man. He went to one particular man. And the thing about it is, that man didn't even come to Jesus. Jesus went to him. Now, there were times also that Jesus ignored questions when people talked with him. It's because he knew the intent of the questions. When Jesus was speaking to Herod, Herod was mocking him, and he hoped that he would see Jesus perform a miracle. He'd heard about what Jesus could do, and he was anxious to see some miracle performed by Jesus. But the Bible says that Jesus never spoke a word to him. Jesus never answered him at all. But when Jesus spoke to Pilate, he answered his questions. Now here is where we come to a fork in the road with Jesus' approach and with our approach. It is impossible for us to see into the heart like Jesus could see into the heart. So what we have to do is we have to attempt a little bit of trial and error. We give the gospel to people and we wait for their reaction. Now we we have to do that in wisdom. Uh, As we noted before, we have to do it the right approach. But we do it. And then we try, we try giving them the gospel, and then we wait to see what happens. And there are some people who respond and believe. There are some people that put it off, and you have to go and deal with that person at another time. But there are also some that are hateful. There are some that will turn on you immediately, and they'll become angry even at the suggestion that they must repent of their sins and trust Christ. Now, here is what Jesus is speaking of when he's talking about casting your pearls before swine. And it's kind of an interesting picture because what he's trying to put into our minds, it's like throwing food over into the hog pen, and the hog begins to munch on all the stuff that he can eat. But what happens if you throw in some pearls with all the beans and other things that that pig might be eating? Well, he gets the pearls into his mouth and very quickly discovers he can't eat the pearls. I mean, that's hard on him. He can't eat the pearls, so he spits the pearls out. 
And he goes on picking up the pea pods that are down there in the mud. He eats that, but he tramples the pearls under his feet. This is what Jesus is saying. That's what obstinate unbelievers do. They can take their wicked vices. They can live in their sin, and that's not a problem to them. But when you give them the truth, they trample it under their feet. So what do we do then? Well, we shake the dust off our feet and we move on. We don't continually waste time with those kinds of people because when we do, we're actually keeping other people from hearing the gospel. There is time better spent on more fertile ground. Now, this is exactly what Jesus taught the disciples to do. He gave these instructions in the Gospel of Mark, and he said unto them, And what place soever ye enter into a house, there abide ye till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. You know, this is the method that Paul used. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were on a missionary trip, and they were preaching in the city of Antioch of Pisidia. Paul preached a great message in which he rehearsed Jewish history all the way from the very beginning all the way up until the time of Christ's rejection by the Jewish leaders. He told about Christ's death. He told about the crucifixion. And he talked about the resurrection of Christ. And there were some that believed. But there was also in that crowd of Jews some that heard and blasphemed the message of Paul and Barnabas. Now let me read to you a few verses from Acts 13, picking up the story after the preaching. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now you see, when Paul preached, there were some people that were saved, but there were also Jews that caused trouble. There were those that blasphemed. And so Paul turned away from them. He didn't preach them anymore. And then he began preaching to the Gentiles. Now we notice in verse number 48 of the same chapter, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. When they heard the gospel preached, they were glad. And they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now there you see God's selection. There were those that were ordained to eternal life. Now folks, we don't know who those are. We don't know it until we preach the gospel. There are some that have been chosen by God, and they will believe, but others will reject it. They will obstinately reject the message. They'll stay in unbelief. And so we stop preaching to them, and we go to those who will hear. So this is basically the thrust of Jesus' teachings in these verses. There is a time to judge. There is a right way to judge. And we have to be very, very careful that we understand how to do this. We must call sinners to repentance. But we also have to stop when valuable time is waste, being wasted on obstinate unbelievers. Now, I want to 
quickly move on to emphasize one more valuable teaching in the passage. I won't take much time with this today. But thirdly is the resolution of obedient believers. Now, I love the terminology that Jesus uses in verse 6. The dogs and hogs, that, that part's not too pleasant. But notice how he terms the gospel, or in general what he calls truth. He calls it first holy, and then he calls it pearls. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. The gospel is holy. The gospel is valuable like pearls. Now, a true Christian is neither obdurate nor obstinate about the truth. True Christians always respond to the truth. So we don't become angry when the preacher or when another good Christian comes to us and they try to correct us. I mean, when I speak to people, when I see that there's some sin in your life and I know that that sin is against the Word and I know it harms you, the reason that I speak to you is not to do you further harm, but in order to help you, to call you back to where you can come into fellowship with God again. God's truth is always like pearls. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There are three important resolutions that every Christian needs to make concerning the Word of God. How do you take God's Word? First of all, you are to love the Word. Rejoice when you hear it. The psalmist says that God's word is sweeter than honey. So if the word rebukes you, then you say, praise God. I delight in God's word. I love his word. I want to be cleansed by his word. So you always resolve to love the word of God. Secondly, learn the word. David said, if I hide God's word in my heart, I will not sin against him. And so when we learn the word, it keeps us from sin and it keeps us from judgment. Psalms 119, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So you resolve to learn the word. And then finally, resolve to live the word. How are you going to stop from being criticized? Where does judgment end? Well, it ends at the feet of those who live the Word. As long as you're living the Word, unjust criticisms will never stick. If your character is consistently that you live in the Word, you're a person who lives the Word, then people who hear bad things about you will dismiss the critics. They'll uphold your integrity. They know that you've been living in the Word. So what you'd never do, never give people the opportunity to criticize. Don't give them a reason, I should say, to criticize. Critical people are always searching for something. They're always looking for ammunition. So let them waste their time looking for it. Don't be so foolish as to hand it over to them. See, God's Word is like pearls. It's valuable to you. It's valuable for protection. So you always want to make sure that you never neglect the Word of God. Don't trample it under your feet. Pigs may do that. But the sheep of God's pasture never should. Always love God's word. Live God's word. Stay in God's word. These are pearls. This is what's holy. And God promises he'll bless you by it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the time that we're able to spend in your word today. We look at passages that 
are sometimes difficult and we can't even understand sometimes why Jesus would say such things. But we know that you're able to look into the heart. You see who we are and what we are. And we just thank you, Lord, by your grace, not because of anything that we've ever done. You've reached down and saved us from our sins. Lord, I pray that you would bless as we sing now. Bless your people. And we pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, may they clearly understand the look that God has upon them. The wrath of God abides upon them, the word of God says. And we must trust you in order to have that wrath removed from us. So, Lord, speak to some soul today about trusting you for salvation. And then for the people of God, I just pray that you'd help us to be wise as we handle your word. Help us to be uh, people who live in the word so that not only are we not unjustly criticized, but we wouldn't be unjustly criticized, but that also, Lord, we would have the ability within ourselves through your grace to be able to remove all imperfections that we have so we can talk to people when they are in sin and then have them gladly receive that message. Give us the wisdom to do that, Lord. Bless us as we sing today, and we just give you the praise for the time we've spent in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.